1: This show is brought to you by Safety FM. The Jay
0: Allen Show is streaming now on safetyfm.live. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Jay Allen Show. Today's Tuesday, July the 7th of 2020. I hope all is well in your neck of the woods. I know it's been some strange times as of late, but hey... We're making it through it together. Well, I don't want to take too much of your time at the very beginning of this thing, so let's get it started. I'm going to tell you today's episode is going to run a little bit longer than normal, so I want you to be prepared, but I think it's going to be one that you're going to enjoy. Today, I have the opportunity to speak with Blair Boyd. Blair Boyd is the host of a new podcast that came out that's called Safer Than Your Average. I want you to take a listen to this conversation that I have today with Blair Boyd. And he talks about an episode that actually was released yesterday, July the 6th. But I want you to take a listen to what he has to say. Enjoy it now on The Jay Allen Show. Blair Boyd, how are you? I'm
1: good, G. How about
0: you? Oh, can't complain. So, Blair, let's start off. I know that we we have briefly spoken in the past, so this is going to be an unfair interview because I already know some of the answers, so I'll kind of chuckle at it right now. But what got you started into this whole mess of podcasting?
1: So, the Institution of Occupational Safety and Health is the biggest chartered organization in the UK and they used to release a magazine every month and it had an article that told you about professionals' background, how they got started in safety, what they were interested in, some of the courses that they'd done and a bit about their CV, the jobs that they'd progressed through and what their hobbies outside of work was. So being a young, keen professional, wanted to develop and move on. I used to sit with a pen and pad every month and make notes of some of the training courses that some of these guys had been on, get involved in them and then really start to research how they got to where they were. I loved that particular article being in the magazine, but unfortunately they stopped it a couple of years ago. And I was having a chat one afternoon Mm -hmm. with my line manager and I said, you know, I really miss that article being in the magazine because it gave me some great tips when I was starting out my career. And he said, well, think about a way to resurrect it. Is there any way that we could bring it back? And I said, yeah, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make a health and safety podcast, and I'm going to interview people that are eminent in the industry. So I started looking around at podcasts, and a guy that grew up in a relatively similar area to me in Glasgow that knew a few friends of mine, um, he was one of the cool kids when I was a bit more geeky. Um, <laughs> he started his own podcast, and he's getting over a million views per episode at the moment. But I found some of the connotations of what he was doing. He was interviewing all these kind of celebrity gangsters and criminals. And I thought, I know some really interesting people without um, interviewing criminals or people that have been involved in crime. But they've got great careers and great backstories because they've worked in the safety industry. Because as you know, Jay, it's a really interesting industry to work in.
0: Well, I didn't know if you were going to turn around and say that you have some celebrity or some safety gangsters that you could interview.
1: <laughs> I probably do, somewhere along the line. <laughs>
0: now, now, Blair, not to throw this off too much, but people are going to recognize right away that you're not from the U.S. Can you tell them where you're based
1: out of? Sure. So I'm based out of Glasgow and Scotland.
0: Yeah, so this is going to be different because I, right now what we normally do is we we interview quite a few people, but most of them are from the U.S. So how did you get involved with the whole world of safety? So that's how you got the podcast side. How did you get involved with the world of safety?
1: Sure. So safety has been a bit of a development. I kind of fell into the career, if I'm honest. However, I always had a bit of a passion for it without really knowing why. Um, when I was growing up, my granddad was a World War II veteran, And he had worked in a shipyard, quite a famous shipyard, that built all of the world's luxury liners. Um, It was based in a place called Clay Bank, just on the outskirts of Glasgow in Scotland. It was an industrial town, and it had two big employers. One of them was John Brown's shipyard, and the other one was Singer's Sewing Machine Factory. And the town kind of thrived in the 1920s, 1930s, when my granddad was growing up, during the Great Depression. Um, he went to work in the shipyards and he worked on the first ship he worked on as an apprentice's helper at 14 years old was the Queen Mary, which is now in Long Beach in California and it's still afloat. It was built in, um, I believe, in the 1930s. But as part of his work in the yards, he progressed on to be a pipe fitter and worked quite closely with a lot of guys that were asbestos laggers. So they would put the asbestos lagging around the pipes behind him as he was working. And in his later life, I can remember being, being a relatively young kid, he was maybe in his 70s, waking up in the morning and he would go to the bathroom for 15 minutes and, uh, 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 and cough to try and release the tension in his chest um, from having slept overnight. And I always used to ask my grandmother, why does he do that every morning? And she said, well, he was exposed to this dust and he's work and it, it's left him with a long-term lung condition, which is known oh,
0: as... Hold on. How did, this, how did this get you excited about being in safety? This would deter me from that.
1: <laughs> I'll come to that. It's quite interesting. So he um, he took me once to a meeting um, in Clive Bank. There was a group formed because all of the shipyard workers across their career had been exposed to asbestos, And he took me to a meeting um, at the Clydebank Asbestos Action Group where they were putting together a class action lawsuit to claim for compensation against the shipyard from all of the people who had been made ill and some of the families of people who had passed away from it. And I saw one or two people there that spoke and they spoke with such passion about putting this class action lawsuit together and really trying to get that claim in place and make people's lives a little bit better who suffered ill health through their work. So that that's where it kind of ignited from. I then went to school, um, and all through my kind of school career, I wasn't very academical. Um, I grew up in Glasgow at a time when it was the murder capital of Europe. So there was quite a lot of trouble with gangs and problems with uh, knife crime, especially. And at school, school was pretty much a, a war zone. Um, rival schools fought with each other and their break times and things like that. So I wasn't very academical and I would go missing and play truant quite a lot and disappear and go exploring. And I used to wander around Clive and go to the, the library and the museum instead of going, being at school. And I never really knew what I wanted to do as a consequence to that. So I left school and I got a job. And the printing industry and I had a really great guy as a line manager, a guy called Stephen Grew, and he might be listening to this or he might not be. I've not spoken to him in a while, but I was a bit young and a bit wild and a bit out of control. And uh, he said to me, I know how I'm going to fix you. How I'm going to fix you is I'm going to give you responsibility and make you responsible to look after other people and help other people. So that kind of launched into a career of, getting a little bit more responsibility, teaching people things, getting put onto training courses to be able to instruct people how to drive a forklift. And I started on that journey when I was 19, but I was training guys in their 40s and sometimes in their 50s, and they were having to listen to me and pass a test at the end and show me a practical example of them driving a forklift. So it was really interesting having that little bit of experience. And I thought, yeah, I like this. Then one day, a manager who shall remain nameless was supposed to go on a training course called the IOS Managing Safely course, and he didn't want to go on it. And he said, "Do you fancy going on this course?" And I said, "Well, okay, yeah. I was always taught by my granddad never turn down free training, son. You never know when it will come in useful." So. I jumped on this course and it was a week long training course that gave you an introduction to health and safety, how to carry out a risk assessment, what legislation applied to health and safety in the UK and just a kind of very brief overview course. And I absolutely loved it. I thought, wow, this is amazing. People get paid to do this. This is great. This is what I want to do. So I badgered them all the time. I really want to get involved in this more. I really want to work in health and safety. So they Gave me more and more responsibility. They let me develop a few different training courses within the business and started to progress me into that role. Let me carry out some of the risk assessments and get involved in some of the health and safety work with the business. Up to a point where there was a big construction project taking place in our organisation and they were looking at upgrading all the uninterruptible power supplies and they were also setting up what's probably pretty common now, but wasn't common then because it was a financial business I worked for, they were setting up a data centre within the site that I worked on. And uh, some of the technology was relatively new at the time. So I got involved with the construction guys coming in, issuing their permits and acting as a client representative. And it was really interesting. I was absolutely fascinated by the construction side of things. Coupled into that, my stepfather-in-law worked in the offshore oil and gas industry, which was absolutely booming at the time, and he was very influential in my career. He was always pushing me and challenging me to try and get to that next step. So he was a really great guy, really encouraged me a lot, and I hassled my employer that much that they agreed to let me go on to do a further education course, a university course on occupational safety and health. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to the home of real safety talk. You're listening to Safety FM. We'll be right back. Hey, Jay.
0: Just wanted to tell you, I have a new book, and it seems kind of timely. Although I didn't write it for a global pandemic, and by the way, this is my first one, it seems to have lots of legs on this topic. The book's called When the Worst Accident Happens, and it's a field guide to understanding how to begin a restorative process of responding to a horrible event that book is available now on amazon i think you'd like it tell all your friends are you tired of not being able to reach the people inside of your organization what if there's a better approach what if you could contact them in a click of a button here at safety fm we can assist you reach your team via podcast how about setting up a private podcast for just you and your team members we will cover topics that are important to you and your company. Visit safetyfm.com. That's safetyfm.com. And click on services for more information about your own private podcast. Safety FM, a safety-focused moment venture. And we are back on the Jay Allen Show on Safety FM. And this is coming from a guy who said that he's not very academic. It sounds like... like,
1: very little qualifications whatsoever. Um, I left at 15 and a half and the school, I think, had a party after I left. They were glad <laughs> to see the back of me.
0: <laughs> but So all of a sudden you decided to go back to school. So how does that work out for
1: you? So it didn't, to be honest. Um, what happened was we were all put on notice of redundancy a week after they agreed to let me go on the university course. And I lost the funding for it. And we were told to hang on in there and we would get a redundancy payment, but it could be up to a year before we would be able to leave. And it turned out that it was 11 months for me. But I got the redundancy check through on the Friday and I started at university on the Monday, a year after we were told that. And I went back as a full-time student at 27 years old. Um, redundancy check fresh into the bank full-time student, decided to really focus on trying to get ahead in my career. But in the lead-up to that, for the the year that I was on notice, I worked back shift from 2 o'clock until 10 o'clock at night, and I thought, I've been in this job for 10 years, and I've never really experienced working in any other industry or for any other employer. So I contacted a lot of different businesses, and I said, look, have you got any space to let someone that's young and keen wants to develop, come in and have a look at what you're doing and how you do it, and there was a lot of doors closed in my face and a lot of people said, no, we can't do that because of the liability with the insurance. Mm -hmm. So I really came up against a brick wall, but one day I contacted a small consultancy, a guy called Willie Crystal, and Willie will definitely be listening to us. He's a great guy, great safety professional. He had just left the the Aviation Fire Service at Glasgow Airport and he had set up his own consultancy business called MaxSafe Solutions and it was a training and consultancy organisation and I contacted him and had a 30-minute call with him and he said, right, pitch to me. How are you going to sell this to me? What benefit am I getting of you coming to work with me? And I gave him a pitch and he said, that was excellent. However, I was going to let you anyway. I just wanted to see what your (laughs) pitching skills are like to see if you could do training. And uh, I said, I'm going to have to watch you, haven't I? And he said, yeah, definitely, but I'll let you come and get a bit of work experience with me. So got the work experience with him, and I worked on everything from a funeral home right up to an anaerobic digestion plant that they were making energy from waste food products, um, consulting on various different areas, and delivering training. Willie was an excellent teacher. He was one of those teachers that you get that he wouldn't tell you the answer. It would take you on a journey to find out how you could find out the answer.
0: That's, that's the best kind of teacher for sure.
1: Definitely, definitely. So really enjoyed my time working with him. And I worked from, with him from kind of 7, 8 o'clock in the morning up until lunchtime. Quickly darted away from there and went and worked on my shift in the printing place from 2 o'clock until 10 o'clock at night. Five days a week. Absolutely loved it thrived on the energy that I was getting from it, really enjoyed the time that I had there. Um, So that kind of came to an end when I I started at university because I decided to be a full-time student at 27, as I said. And I was on the course for two weeks Mm -hmm. and the guy sitting next to me was being put through the course by his employer. And he said, do you know something? You're a great guy and you've got some great knowledge. I'd love to help you out. I'm going to speak to my employer and see if initially you can come and shadow me and see what I do. And I said, well, that's excellent because you work in an industry that I'm really interested in working in, construction. So let's do this. So I went to work for a business called Land Engineering, who unfortunately aren't go- are going a going concern anymore. They went bankrupt a couple of years ago, um, but an excellent organisation. And at the time, they were working on some absolutely amazing projects in the UK. They were working on the biggest construction project in Europe, which was an £880 million hospital build, which was a a big, big project. Um, They weren't principal contractor or anything like that on it. They were a a subcontractor to the principal contractor. But wow, what an experience that was. And I got some really great experience. I also got a bit of a baptism of fire there as well, um, going in (laughs) to see some of the, the issues that they had on sites and, being able to really support and develop, going out to do accident and incident investigations and getting that coaching from another really great guy who's been really influential in my career and remains one of my good friends today, a guy called Matthew Orr, absolutely great guy, great coach, ex-military background and really, really good at teaching as well. So I worked there for a while, worked on some really interesting projects and One that kind of stands out, I was talking to Matthew about this the other day on a call um, and we were reminiscing of this one, that we went to a particular project in an area of Scotland called Fife, which has a lot of historical buildings and there was a a project being undertaken to restore the brickwork on a Gothic-style church. With a big spire and a clock, and it had a 24 elevation scaffold, which was 24 stories. Um, The scaffold bill for the project was a million pounds, a million UK pounds, so probably about 1.25 million dollars. Really interesting project, and the church had a big uh, tower bell in it as well in the spire. So one morning we arrive at site and. There's three police cars at the front of the site, and I think, oh, no, what's happened here? We get a bit closer, and we get out the the company-branded van, and immediately I see this big police officer coming towards me, and he says, "Um, are you the site manager? I said, no, sorry, we're the safety team. Oh, that's even better. Can you open the site office up? We really need to have a word with you. And I glance over his shoulder, and there's a tool chest sticking out the front of the police car, smashed into the bonnet. and uh, no, an impact. And I think, uh oh, what's happened here? And um it transpires that two chefs from a local hotel had got really, really drunk after their shift and decided it would be a good idea to climb this massive scaffolding. So they broke into the site, climbed over the site fencing, Um, got onto the scaffold and climbed up to the 22nd elevation where they found a spanner and they started dinging the church bell at 4am which woke up half of the town and of course the police were called. So the police arrive at sight and one of them was afraid of heights. Now it subsequently transpires that he was three quarters of a bottle deep in Jack Daniels so (laughs) It maybe sounded like a good idea at the time to climb a 24-elevation scaffold when you're afraid of heights, but when the police turned up, I think he sobered up pretty quickly and he took vertigo and had a panic attack and had to lie down on the scaffolding. His buddy that was with him decided to throw the tool chest as a warning off of the scaffolding to the police, but it subsequently hit the police car and smashed into the bonnet. So he made his escape by climbing down the outside of the scaffold and running away, leaving his friends stranded at 22 elevations, having a panic attack. So the police had to get the mountain rescue out to rescue this guy. And they used a Billy Pugh system to bring him down from the scaffold.
0: This sounds like a really good friend in regards to leaving the guy behind.
1: Yep. That's uh, that's not the funny bit of the story, though. So the client for that particular project was absolutely delighted with the work that we'd done on it. So much so that he decided to put a celebratory lunch on for all of the site team at the end of the project. Guess where he picked to have the celebratory lunch? The hotel Um, where the two gentlemen who had been arrested and subsequently went to court for throwing a toolbox off of the scaffolding they worked there as the chefs in the kitchen.
0: Oh, Lord. <laughs>
1: Needless to say, we had to decline that offer. So that was just one experience um, and a long line of them across my career working in safety in Scotland. It's been some really unique and interesting things happened.
0: Now, as you, so as you go through this, how far are you before you start doing the podcast? So how many years is this oh, again? That, that was a good,
1: probably... 10 years ago now um, so I was still at university as I said well that was happening relatively full time as a student so I was doing two and a half days a week as a student and then I was going out and working on the sites two and a half days a week to get experience in construction. So I got up to the, the end of the first year and I got the opportunity to go and work for an absolutely fantastic business. The biggest construction company in scotland that's still privately owned and it's owned by a family and the family name is on the business it's called the robertson group absolutely amazing company and they had this excellent program called the summer interns program now summer interns are pretty popular in the u.s but it wasn't a very big thing when i was at university in the uk so i was really lucky to get on this program and I worked for an absolutely brilliant woman who was a group safety manager called Claire Walsh. And I had a great safety director called Ken Miller. And they worked as a team um, pretty closely. They had some really great people working for the business at the time as well. And I was actually talking to one of them today. He was a bit of a mentor to me, a guy called Murray Province. Murray was an HSE inspector. So he was a regulator, if you like in the industry for a number of years before he finished up with a regulator and went over to the dark side to work for one of the contractors. <laughs> and I got to work with him and ask him loads of different stuff. Like we would be driving around in the car and I'd say to him, look at that construction job over there. When you were a regulator, how would you would you have stopped to go and speak to them? What would have been a red flag to you? What would have flagged something up that you would have thought, hmm, I'm going to go and have a bit of a further look at this? And uh, he gave us lots of good information and really helped us to develop my career. So I worked with them on the summer interns program. They sent me around all different construction sites all across Scotland on some really great projects. Um, the new McAllen Distillery and Visitors Centre was one that sticks in my mind. And Craig away up in the remote highlands of Scotland. And that was a great project. It was the first subterranean distillery in the world. The Macallan Whiskey, of course, is um, very famous worldwide. And I really enjoyed working on that project. That was another big mega project. Lots of money being spent on it. As I said, first underground distillery. And um, it looked absolutely phenomenal when it was finished. So I'd done that for a few months, but they (laughs) recognised that I was very good at what I was doing and brought me in for a meeting one day and said, look, we want to offer you a full-time job. How would that work with you going back to university? Would you be willing to drop down to part-time? And I said, yes. And they said, well, we've not told you what the job is yet. And I said, okay. And they said, we're going to put you in charge of health and safety for all of the residential businesses. And I was absolutely crestfallen. I was devastated because I thought, house building, I don't want to do that. (laughs) I very, very quickly realized that house building is the Rolls Royce of the construction industry, because if you can build houses, you can build anything. The reason being, the projects are really, really fast paced because the minute you put a shovel in the ground, the clock is ticking for the payback on the money that it's cost to set the site up. Your first six to ten houses are the money that cover the cost of the site, and then you really start to develop in the money from there. That's why they release them in phases. Coupled with that, what is the worst thing that you can put in the middle of a construction project? Members of the public. Guess what happens when you finish the first ten houses? Members of the public move into the middle of your construction project And you need to start to plan round about them being there and start to really develop your systems so that they don't interface with the work that you're carrying out and they still have a normal life. Because a lot of the houses that we built with the Robertson Group were very, very expensive houses, very high spec luxury homes. So really developed there, got to work on some amazing projects for them, some really great residential projects. And there was a small business that was a relatively fledgling business when I first started with Robertson Group within the group called Robertson Partnership Homes. And they only had a couple of sites. And their business model was very clever. They were building social housing for local councils and they would identify a plot of land that they could maybe build 350 or 400 houses on and go to the local council and say, we can build this for you for this much cost. And with the housing shortage in the UK, the local councils would say, that's excellent. Let's do it. Nine times out of 10. So they very quickly grew, and the growth was absolutely exponential. It became a massive organisation in its own right. Um, So I've got some great experience working with some really interesting sites and a, a really great director to work with there, or directorship team, that were really intuitive and let me develop some of the kind of safety community side of things. Um, We didn't call it safety community then. That came later with a gentleman called Eddie Woods, who I'm working quite closely with now. Um, But really trying to develop the, the influence at site level of the thinking of the guys actually delivering, guys and girls actually delivering the work for you and undertaking the work. So really interesting. Enjoyed it. Enjoyed my time there. I watched this TV program one night with my long-suffering wife, and I said, look at this. This is amazing. And it was a TV program called Paddington, and it was about Paddington <laughs> Railway Station, not the bear, um, down in London. The bear comes in right away. Not the bear. It was about the railway station and the operational railway and how they maintained the railway around Paddington station down in London. I said to my wife, this is fascinating. There's a whole world that goes on at night that we don't know about to keep these trains running. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm going to work in that industry. And she said, please don't start. You've just got settled into construction and now you want to move into rail. I said, but it's similar and I'm really interested in it and I think I could be really passionate about this. So for a couple of months, I researched and I had a look around and there wasn't very many railway jobs advertised. And I kind of put it on the back burner and thought, if I ever see a job advertised that's working in health and safety in the rail industry, I'm going to go for that and I'm going to get involved in it, because I really think I'd be good at that. And one day out of the blue, it was these degrees of separation again, I was on LinkedIn, and I accidentally clicked a link on a post, and I don't know how I ended up on the page, and I saw this job advertised for Siemens Mobility Rail Infrastructure UK as a health and safety advisor for the signalling and telecoms business, and I thought, I'm going to apply for that. Just in the off chance, I probably won't get it, but I'm going to apply for it and see what they say. And I got an interview, and the interview transpired into a full-time position. And i just graduated from university at that time, and at the time that I graduated, I was very fortunate to be selected as the court medal winner, as the most academical person of the year, and I was given the great honour to graduate first in my class, And I got the court medal, which is a medal that you get and you get an additional certificate on top of your degree certificate and a photograph taken with the dean of the school and all that stuff. It was absolutely amazing. And it was a real, real honour. So I was talking about that in the interview and they said, look, you've not got any real experience and this is a totally different world from what you're used to working in. Some of the stuff's similar, but we're going to give you a shot at it. And I was delighted to get that shot. So I went to work with Siemens and I was going to be working with two really experienced guys. And I started on the Monday and one of the guys that worked with me, um, lovely, lovely gentleman called Mick Howard, um, he went off to have a quadruple heart bypass. Um, he'd previously had heart operations and he went off to have the, have the operation and unfortunately he didn't recover from it and he died as a consequence of complications from the operation. And the the whole business was absolutely devastated. He'd been there for a long, long time. I went to his funeral and he was so respected that people from pretty much every rail company in the UK had representation at his funeral. And it was um it was a big loss for the business. But I then had to pick up on some of his projects and I didn't have any experience working in the rail industry. I'd never set foot legally on a railway track. I'd trespassed a couple of times when (laughs) I was a kid, um, which I probably shouldn't have done, but I'd never legally set foot on a railway and I had to pick up on his work and he had £100 million projects in the pipeline and running um, at the time he passed away. So I had to really learn quickly and learn on the job and go out and get involved in some stuff. So I had a good guy that I worked with there, a guy called Tom Waddle. He pushed us on and said, go out and work with the guys and see what they do on a nightly basis and understand the job before you start to, to do safety. Get involved and help them out with some of the operations that they're doing, pulling cable and learn from the inside out effectively, which i done. It was excellent. Went out there. Got all my qualifications to be able to work safely on the railway and coding my personal track safety certificate. Um, Got that. And my first shift, I went out in sight as an observer and I was standing watching a couple of guys working and one of them was holding a cable and he said to the other guy, cut the cable. And he had black gloves on, holding a black cable. It was night time. And you can see where this is going. The cable cutter cut into his thumb. And I looked mm. at the guy and I thought, oh no, he's going to go into shock here. His face went white and I had to grab him and pull him away from the rest of his team and set him down. And he was trying to pull his glove off to see it. And I said, look, just keep that on just now. Give us the first aid kit. First aid, aid him. Kazzy him off site and took him to hospital. And this is on my first shift, by the way. Um... So we go to hospital, it's three o'clock in the morning and we go to the Royal in Glasgow, the Royal Hospital in Glasgow, which if any of the the listeners are Scottish, they'll probably know has a bit of a reputation. It's the closest hospital to the city centre. And at 3am, all of the nightclubs in Glasgow city centre kick out, all of their, their clients and a good number of them start to fight. And the hospital really starts to get busy. So if you can imagine a scene where we walk in and we're head to toe in bright orange reflective high-vis clothing, I've got a guy who's um, got a pretty bad injury to his thumb. We're sitting waiting to be seen. There's drunk people all over the place. There was a guy at the, the counter shouting that the, the staples that had been put into your leg from where he had been stabbed were coming out. And the receptionist was telling him he'd been seen twice, and if he'd picked the staples out again, they weren't prepared to fix them. To to which he dropped his trousers and decided to start pulling them out. You can imagine we were in for a bit of a rough ride waiting on that accident (laughs) emergency. Great hospital. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, really interesting. So um, that was my first shift on the railway. Um, I'm glad to say it got a bit better from there. Um, I had to rec- obviously recuse myself from that accident and incident investigation, or recuse, sorry, myself from that accident and incident investigation, um, and let one of my colleagues investigate it and act as a witness. So there was a bit of a point to that story that I saw an incident actually occur in front of me, and I got to be the person being interviewed and see how the system worked as a witness rather than the interviewer, which I'd always been in in the role up until that point. And it gave me a lot of insight how to develop my accident and incident investigation techniques. So really, really interesting. So done my time with the the railway. Siemens were a great organisation to work for. They really wanted to develop their people and give you free reign to travel around and see other projects. So they let me go down south to see some of the big construction, rail construction projects that were happening in England, all around London, some of the jobs like Crossrail and various other big infrastructure projects that were happening. And I really got a a great knowledge of engineering construction from there. I then decided um, just at the start of the year, to be honest, to move on from there. And I got an opportunity to go and work with an organisation that were in my, my sights for a long time, um, I had real ambition to work with this business because of their principles and their beliefs, um, and they're doing a lot of great work. I mentioned Eddie Woods earlier on. I've probably mentioned a few people in this podcast, but Eddie's been really influential in my career. We've done some initial work with him at Siemens um, on cultural modelling and cultural safety, and he owns a great business called Cardale. Um, I had him on my podcast, my Safer Than Your Average podcast, just this week, going out as a, an hour-long interview, yeah. stuff's absolutely fascinating. And he talks about, he's a psychologist rather than being a safety professional. And he talks about cultural modelling and how to get people to understand how their mind works and how that influences safety on site. And he works with organisations that are high-performing organisations to act as a bit of a kind of nip and tuck, if you take it back to the old kind of analogy of The organisations really got down to that level that you're getting a paper cut reported, um, a scratch in the face with bushes reported when someone's walking through a a car park and the vegetation's overgrown a little bit. You're getting all of that level of reporting someone's been stung with a wasp or a bee and they're reporting it. But how do you then drive that bit of culture to start eliminating some of these incidents and accidents um, at the lower level? And he's brilliant at bringing organisations to that mindset and changing the culture and the organisation and getting that level of of reporting and getting it right down to the finite level and taking it as close to zero as you can. And one of Eddie's great sayings is you're zero. So it's not the company's zero or the safety professional's zero. It's the individual's zero. What will you accept as your zero accidents or zero incidents? Because we all go out to work to get home to our family and to make money for our family at the end of the day
0: don't go anywhere
1: you're listening to the home of real safety talk
0: you're listening to safety fm we'll be right back you are listening to a renowned safety expert dr jay allen on safety fm changing safety cultures One broadcast and one podcast at a time. Join the fun on social media and find us on Facebook at Safety FM. Hi, I'm Luke. And I'm Brennan. We We are are the Farm Farm Finders. Finders. When we first got married, we dreamed of owning land and building a self-sufficient lifestyle.
1: But we soon saw that buying land was almost out of reach. Land was expensive and hard to finance. But we couldn't just give up on our dream of being landowners.
0: To be honest, it was a pretty discouraging problem. But we were determined to find a solution, so we started a company called The Farm Finders to find properties that anyone could afford.
1: That was a few years back, and today we're proud to say we've helped hundreds of people make their landowning dreams a reality.
0: There's something inside each of us that wants a piece of land to call our own. Here at The Farm Finders, we can make that happen.
1: If you're like us and dream of owning land, then check out our website at thefarmfinders.com to find that perfect property.
0: Take advantage of our no credit check, zero interest owner financing with payments as low as $50 a month with our secure online checkout. It's easy to make any property yours with just a few clicks. So
1: don't just dream. Do something. Visit farmfinders.com today. Let's, let's make, make you Orlando. a
0: landowner. And we are back on the Jay Allen Show on Safety FM. Well, what do you think about that? Because let's talk about that for a moment. That whole zero aspect. Mm-hmm. Being even as an individual, how could you possibly set that up? Well, how, is it, how is it something that's sustainable? Because here's how I look at it. Well, let's get your answer first before I actually tell you what I think.
1: Sure. So zero harm, right, I think has been capitalized on by a lot of organizations to think we can achieve zero accidents, zero incidents. But how do you maintain that? Mm-hmm. How do you legislate or um, plan for that one in a million type event? You can't there's always going to be accidents and incidents. So I really like the way that Eddie Woods framed it for us when I was at Siemens um, to look at the you zero. So if I said to you, Jay, you're going to work this morning, you're going to have an accident today, you'd be pretty miffed. Yeah? You would like to think that you wouldn't have an accident and you would do everything in your power to try and prevent that accident. So if you frame it in that context, it's personal to you if you can do stand up at the end of the day and say i've done everything to make sure that i don't have an accident and support the organization to make sure my friends and peers haven't had an accident then i believe that that that's achievable
0: so what happens the moment that you have one accident then doesn't that kind of throw the whole thing out the window? Because what is what are we deeming as an accident would be the other question, too, sure. because if it's, sure. if it's one thing, it changes everything. Because let's say, for instance, well you we won't say where the person actually dismembered his finger, as you were referencing earlier. Yep. But if you have a finger cut, mm-hmm. doesn't that all of a sudden change that whole harm aspect now? Because now that's not zero. So that kind of puts a cowbosh to the whole system to the whole program because you were basing it off of that.
1: Sure, sure. I get where you're coming from on that one. But again, if you take it back to making it a personal aspect, so making it zero, zero, you've had an accident, you learn from it, you start to put procedures in place and you support the closeout of that. And a lot of the guys that worked with me in the rail industry, if they had an accident or incident, they would say to me, I'm glad you're investigating this and you're coming in because we know that you're here to try and make it better for us and make sure this doesn't happen again. We know that you're not just coming in as a tick box exercise to make sure that we get away from this and the company's protected. You're really coming in to find out what happened, how we fix it and not put personal blame on someone or go for the, the kind of legal aspect. You're there to develop it and you really do care about it.
0: Yeah, but I guess when you start saying about going into blame on people in particular, especially when you're talking to people inside of the organization that are saying that to you, that means that they're they're still using what we call quote unquote system one or behavior based safety, opposed to looking at it as safety differently because safety differently automatically realizes that people do make mistakes and that is, it's kind of the common groundwork. I, I get flustered and just me personally, of course, when people start talking about, You know, the zero thing, because I just don't think that it's obtainable. And and don't get me wrong. Paul O'Neill talked about it for a long period of time on Alcoa. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the driving force and some of the things that some of these bigger organizations are doing out there. But I just don't think that it's realistic because even your best worker makes mistakes. They just know how to uh, they know how to cover it better. They've done it so many times that they do the work around as they do it. So that's why I'm, I'm a big I'm a big proponent of even an organizational performance or safety too. however you want to deem it when people start talking about it. Because I'm always like, there's there's better ways to do things. And most of the times what takes place is the people that work for you or with you understand it better than the people that are inside of the C-suite.
1: Sure, sure. And how we got around that or how we started to manage that was looking at bringing in the non-technical skills aspects and realizing that people do make mistakes. One of the things that used to rub me up the wrong way incident an accident investigation was you got a closeout and it would say human performance failure or (laughs) lapse in concentration. I used to be tearing my head out saying, well, why did they fail to concentrate? What was the underlying thing there? So we really started to develop a scheme of non-technical skills. So you have your technical skills that you can train people for and educate them for, and it goes on their experience. But your non-technical skills are formed by your upbringing, your background, the experiences that you've had in life. And what we found, especially working in the west of Scotland, people don't like to speak up about things. So the Your Zero thing was bringing it back in and framing the language in a way that it was taking the Zero Harm thing and saying, look, we're not telling you you're not going to have accidents. What we're telling you is do everything in your power not to have an accident. Cooperate, collaborate with your peers work on it and make sure that you're doing everything in your power to eliminate that accident.
0: And how did you see, what was, what, what was the success rate that you saw after that occurred?
1: Do you know, we had great successes in bringing that in, and the biggest success for me was getting people in and really changing the mindset. The particular industry that we worked in, um, you can imagine that the rail industry's been going for a, a couple of hundred years in the U.K., And there's always been a culture of don't speak up, don't say anything, don't tell them what happened, try and just keep it under the radar. If you speak up, there'll be consequences. And we really started to change that mindset and that perception and some of the work that we've done, developing the cultural side of things with the guys and bringing them on to be able to have open and honest conversations and be able to speak up and say, I don't think this is quite right. To the point that we started to bring it into other areas of the business, like fatigue management, that guys could say, do you know what? I feel tired. I don't feel like working tonight. I'm capping this shift here and I'm going home. Without any punitive action or consequences. So it was really taking a a mature cultural approach and developing that through.
0: Well, at least they're, be, they're able to be honest enough to have that discussion because some people inside of organizations don't feel comfortable enough where they can do that, where they can turn around and say, hey, I'm not feeling it today. And it's not the excuse to leave work, but it's really more along the lines of saying, hey, you know, it's a fatigue issue and that's why I want to go. Blah 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 blah, yeah. and continuing on because some people don't feel comfortable enough to telling that yep. to the people that are being that supervise them, quote unquote.
1: But if you put someone in that safety critical environment where there's class two trains running about at line speed of 125 miles an hour, one mistake, it's good night Vienna, no isn't it? There's only going to be one winner.
0: Yeah, th- well, there's normally only going to be one mistake. Is normally how it occurs.
1: Yeah, totally, totally. So having that mature approach to things and being able to speak up and say i don't feel like this today fine go home um so that that was the kind of cultural development stuff that i've done there i then wanted to move to the organization that i'm at at the moment because of the principles of the organization they're moving towards green energy as their, their main resource and moving away from the traditional Coal-fired power plants closing all of them down and moving towards the kind of renewable and sustainable energy projects. Really, really fascinating work and I've really enjoyed getting involved with the business. They've also got a great culture and a great maturity around them, um, how they frame the language of what they're doing and some of the great work that they're doing.
0: So let me ask, because of course, with them knowing now that you're doing the podcast, what are they telling you in regards to doing the podcast? Is it safer than your average? What are they, How do they feel about you talking about some of the things that you talk about?
1: I've not really had any feedback as of yet. Um, you, apart from telling my manager that I've uh, started recording these. I don't know if he's seen any of them yet. So we'll see how it goes. But it's been really good, really positive, to be honest. Um I've had some great feedback from the industry. Some of the, some of the people involved in the industry have came back to me and said, brilliant, we're really enjoying these. It's given us ideas. A lot of the ex-military guys, so ex-military to health and safety seems a pretty well-trodden path in the UK. And the new pre- incoming president of the Institution of Occupational Safety and Health as an ex-military guy. I've done a podcast with him a couple of weeks ago, a guy called Jimmy Quinn. It'll be releasing in a few weeks' time. Um, And he was talking about how he sees developing some of the military veterans to come in because they've got a great transferable skill set to be able to develop over to being a health and safety practitioner. So it seems to be a well-trodden path in the UK. It's something I'm really passionate about, helping people out that have been in the forces, having had some family that were in the military. And a, I can a proud military tra- tradition um, with some of my ancestors.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the podcasts that you have coming up because this is one of the original conversations that you and I had. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the one of the specials that you have coming up in regard to your podcast? Most
1: definitely, I've got an absolutely excellent one that will be going out in the sixth of July, and there's a reason that it's going out in the sixth of July. The reason is this is the thirty second anniversary of the incident. And the podcast is with a gentleman called Joe Meenan. Now, it's been a real career highlight for me to sit down for an hour and speak to Joe about his experiences. Joe was one of the 61 survivors of Piper Alpha. And the podcast will focus on the Piper Alpha disaster. And it was a, a really bad incident that happened on the 6th of July 1988 in the North Sea. It was an oil platform that was being carried out as a bit of an experiment. It was supposed to be shut down um, for maintenance to take place. But because of the money that it was generating, the revenue it was generating, the operating company decided to carry out a bit of an experiment to see if they could keep the platform producing oil at the same time as undertaking the maintenance programme and there was a piece of equipment that was a pump that was taken out of commission in the day shift, and the permit-to-work system was a little bit lax, and the permit was put back on the permit coordinator's desk at the end of the shift. Um, The other pump that was still operating, the twin pump to that one that was still operating, was uh, failing on the night shift, and the decision was taken to try and re-energise the pump that had been removed, but the blanking plates hadn't been fitted properly and it led to quite a significant explosion. Um, The other oil platforms that were connected onto that continued to pump oil and gas to that platform um, all throughout the disaster and it led to the whole rig being engulfed. It was pretty similar to the the Deepwater Horizon incident that in that, the whole rig burnt from sea level right up to the the helideck. And uh, Joe's podcast is absolutely heart-rendering. He tells you about his experiences and he tells it in a very matter-of-fact manner um, and his experiences after it, how it affected his life. He never went back to work in the offshore industry after that particular incident. So that podcast coming out 6th of July, as I said. Um, it's a really interesting one. If you want to have a listen, I'm hoping that it's, uh, it's going to be on Safety FM potentially, Jay.
0: Well, and that's part of the of the thing that I would love to t- talk to the audience and you about is that we've had a brief discussion about actually airing it on Safety FM. Yeah. Now, I always I always tell people I don't want to you know I don't want to be the the early release unless that's what you want us to do, and I would love to have the opportunity to be able to share it on the radio station with the listeners if you're willing to do so.
1: Most definitely, Jay. I'd love to get it out on your radio station and let the listeners hear it because Joe's story has to get out there. Um, He didn't do a lot of public speaking after the incident. Um, He didn't really get involved in anything like that at all. But in 2017, he had a bit of a flashback um, after seeing the Grenfell disaster in London where a block of flats was burnt out and uh, there was a lot of people killed there. And it highlighted similarities to him. So he decided to get involved in public speaking and going out and doing some safety impact speaking for some organisations on his experiences. And uh, just to to wrap it up a little bit and frame that into a little bit of context, Joe actually jumped off of the hairy deck, which was 175 feet into the sea and survived.
0: Wow, and and the thing that he's able to sit down and have the conversation with you so many years afterwards. I mean, regardless of how you look at it, it's an emotional event, of course. course. On how this occurs and him still, you know, being able to survive from it, Mm -hmm. and then the other portion of you being able to him actually coming onto your show. Let's let's just be real and having the discussion. And I mean, when when somebody's having the discussion about something like that, just kind of like you were doing. You're reliving certain portions of your life, and that's what he's doing as he's telling you the story. Sure, sure.
1: And um, the whole thing off of the back of the the podcast that I've done with him, it's a real, as I said at the outset, it's a real career highlight to me. I studied Piper Alpha and the Piper Alpha disaster at university um, in quite a bit of detail as a, a kind of group project. And it really stuck with me. I read a, a, a really great book called Fire in the Night by a guy called Ian McGinty um, that Joe's story features in. And they name him in it. And I thought to myself at the time when I was studying that and reading that book that I'd love to meet that guy and just understand a little bit more about what he went through and the experiences that he had. And uh, it was a real privilege to sit down with him and be able to get that one-to-one talking with him and talk the whole incident through.
0: So, of course, you know I'm going to have to ask the question, how were you able to to find him?
1: So he had done some speaking for one of the, the IOSH, the IOSH Northeast branch um, a couple of months before. I decided to try and get in touch with him to do the podcast. And our regional branch, our, our IOSH regional manager, a gentleman called Anthony Atencio, Anthony's a great guy, he's um, actually American, but he lives over in the UK now, Um, he's done some brilliant work, he's been really, really encouraging and developing the podcast, and he's done some great work to support us, I asked him to reach out to Joe and ask him if he'd be willing to speak to me, and he said, okay, no problems, I'll get in touch with him, he got back to me the next day and said, yeah, he's willing to do it, and it was as simple as that, just an email, and we spoke on the phone and decided to run with it.
0: It's interesting on in how sometimes those things work out because sometimes when you sit around and go, "Well, I don't know if it's going to work," boom, yep. and something like this occurs. Now, how was it for you in regards of setting it up? Because, of course, there has to be some research you have to do into the accident.
1: Of course, of course. As I said at the outset, I was uh, pretty pretty familiar with the the particular incident, um, having researched it at university. So I had to go back through some of my notes and the presentation that I made. Um, for the the year end because it was quite a big credit into one of the modules that I was working on at university. So I had a a good look back through some of the notes for that and then I watched the documentary. I probably pretty stupidly let my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter sit and let her watch the Fire (laughs) in the Night documentary with me and she kept asking me about oil and fire um, for a couple of weeks after that. Um, But it really highlighted to me that I had to look into the, the background of it again and get back into the, the mindset. But Joe's such an easy person to talk to, and he's a really great public speaker. So it really flowed well, and he, he can tell the story very matter-of-factly.
0: So when you go back now and you had to do everything to get everything ready for this to come out on the 6th, mm-hmm. is this is, – how does – how did he feel about the finished product?
1: So I'm going to have to go with another big shameless plug here. I've got a brilliant organization working with me at the moment um, called the Inside Out Group, and I've got a, a really great guy there called Josh Not Fail. Um, Josh is fantastic at video and sound editing. Um, I've worked with him in the past. I've used Inside Out to make a load of different safety videos. And when I said that I was setting up the podcast and getting involved a little bit and trying to do some media stuff, they said to me, look, you've worked with us in the past, you've gave us loads of business, you're a brilliant guy, we really want to work with you. Um, we're going to sponsor you and we'll do all of your editing and help you get this out there. So... Big
0: shout out. Hold you have editors that are doing this stuff for you for free. Yeah, yeah this definitely this definitely sounds like you know what we would call here in the US a drug deal. You get the first the first few ones for free before they start. <laughs> doing.
1: No, no, they have done it totally free <laughs> up until now. So big shout out to the Inside Out Group. Absolutely fantastic business. I've really enjoyed working with them. And if you're in the UK and you want to make some safety videos. Or even in the US, and you want to fly them over, I'm sure they'd be happy to come. Um, they're really good at what they do. Check out our website; they're online and they're based out in Nottingham, in England.
0: Well, I'm sure if anybody can fly, they they would probably be willing to come out here for sure to of do course, so. Now, now, Blair, if people want to know more about you and the podcast, where can they find out more information?
1: Sure. So you'll find me on LinkedIn, um, Blair Boyd CMIOSH on LinkedIn. I've also got a Safer Than Your Average LinkedIn page. I've got a YouTube channel, which we post all of the videos of the podcast being recorded on YouTube. We're on iTunes, we're on Spotify, and we're on the Google Play Store as well. That's Safer Than Your Average is the name on all of them.
0: Then let me ask a strange question here. What is the frequency on your episodes? How frequently do you have them come
1: out? At the moment, I'm releasing one every week, to be honest. Um, I'm really enjoying recording them. I recorded four in the first week that I decided to do this. Um, I've released three so far. There'll be another one coming out on Thursday at 7.30 p.m. UK time. Um, really great stories. I've had some really great, interesting characters on. Next week's one's going to be really interesting. It's a guy called Bill Cassell's. He's an absolutely fantastic guy. I've known him for a couple of years. He owns a business called Oxalate Training. And he's got a real background. Again, he worked with a regulator. And if you're into science, he also worked with the and you'll forgive my my ignorance here, I can't remember the guy's name off the top of my head, but he worked with a scientist that done all the research in the UK about giving spiders illicit narcotics. And they wove a web with a strand missing every time they took some of the narcotics. It's a pretty famous research paper. Bill was a bit of an understudy to him in his early career. So really interesting eccentric guy, and he's a mad inventor as well. He's invented loads of different um, safety kit and kit for testing local exhaust ventilation systems. So check that out. It'll be on release next week.
0: Now let me ask a question real quick, if you don't mind. What are you going to do for the one for July the 6th? Is that the one that you'll... So will there be also an additional release that Thursday or will it only be just on that week on the 6th? At
1: the moment, I'm working with the editors to try and get it back up to speed. They're currently refurbishing the edit studio at the same time as me dropping loads of podcasts into the inbox. So I'm hoping there'll be one coming out on the Thursday at the moment, but we're going to go on time scales. So we're probably going to have to have a meeting on Monday and make a judgment call from there
0: okay well blair i appreciate you actually coming on to the show
1: jay thank you so much for having me on the show i'm absolutely delighted to be on safety fm um it's been an ambition ever since i seen your website and seen the seen the app i thought this is brilliant i've been listening to it non-stop you've got some really eminent people and i never thought my name would be up there with some of them um getting recorded to to go on your show Hey, like
0: I always tell people, this is a ever-growing network of podcasters and broadcasters. I look at it as all I'm trying to do at the end of the day is make sure that we can get the word out there however we need to.
1: Sure, sure. And I've no doubt we'll work again together in the future and put some great content out there. The community seems to be very supportive of each other. I've had loads of people message me and say, this is brilliant, we really like this, we're really enjoying it. Some people that are also doing podcasts sending me messages, giving me tips and information. I had a call with James McPherson the other day, who I know you've had on the show recently, who's also out of the UK, giving me some great advice. He's probably a a couple of years down the line on the journey from me. I'm relatively new to it, but I'm aiming for the top. You always... uh, Aim to be number one and what like your number two as a well, <laughs> advice that I've always been given.
0: Best way to look at it. I always look at it as that you can be number one today and be something entirely else. Don't be so hung up about the numbers. Be hung up on what you're doing to be able to help the community. Yeah, sure, sure.
1: Totally, totally.
0: Well, this is going to bring this episode to an end. I hope you enjoyed the conversation here today with Blair Boyd. We did tend to cover a lot of information. Anyways, want to bring up a couple of things that are coming up right around the corner. Number one, this week, I have a conversation with Sheldon Primus, scheduled for Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. This is a conversation about diversity in the workplace. So if you do get a chance and you're interested in attending this event, it's a virtual event and it's free to everyone. Go to safetyfm.com forward slash live dash virtual. That's safetyfm.com forward slash live dash virtual. And this will get you the opportunity to get a ticket to sign up for this event. Now, this event is going to be a virtual event, but we are not broadcasting it on safetyfm.com. It will only be for the participants that are there in real time. So I want to make sure that that's clear and we will not be doing a rebroadcast. So it's a live event for the people that are there at the time. Also, on July the 29th at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, we're going to be putting on our human and organizational performance class, Hop 101 Fundamentals. So if you're interested in attending a fundamentals class, Hosted by yours truly. Go to safetyfm.io. That's safetyfm.io. That will give you the information on how you sign up for the course. This will be a live course. So we'll be doing the training live between 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. on July the 29th. What we have done for this special event is that we're actually going to be doing a portion of revenue share. So you can come to our website At safetyfm.io and sign up for an affiliate link and even if you're not attending the event you can help promote the event and for every ticket that's sold with your affiliate link we will give you a five percent commission for assisting us in promoting the event and selling tickets for it as well and of course we have a contest going on right now at the same time too to give away tickets for our hop 101 course So you can go to our website, safetyfm.com forward slash contest and enter in right there. Anyways, thank you for always taking a listen to what we have going on here at Safety FM. You are definitely the best part of Safety FM, the listener. As you are aware, Safety FM is the home of Real Safety Talk. We'll be back with another episode of the Jay Allen Show before too long. Goodbye for now. Want more of The Jay Allen Show? Go to safetyfm.com.
1: Any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise, without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast,
0: Jay Allen. This episode has been powered by Safety FM.